I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and this thing's a pull out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse do it again to come back even stronger. Infamous hitman Joe Mad Dog Sullivan was the only man to ever escape from Attica Maximum Security Prison. The audacious career criminal started out life as a good Irish Catholic boy in a squarehead family in Queens. The sudden death of his detective father and the horrendous effect it had on his family broke something inside young Joe, and when Joe broke, he broke bad. Mad Dog Sullivan spent most of his teen years in juvenile detention for petty crimes before graduating to armed robberies and murder. After a chance meeting in the mid-1970s, Joe became a contract killer for the notorious Genovese crime family. Over the next several years, he would go on to murder an estimated 30 people. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, you can go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our adorable and janky early stuff. (laughs) And levels above $5 receive three stickers and handmade Barney badges. Today we're joining forces to do a special episode on contract killer Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. This is going to be a two-episode story because there's just so many sweet gangsters with awesome nicknames and New York crimes to cover. Uh, It really is firm and fruity. Mm -hmm. Now, Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Joe Mad Dog Sullivan was born in the Rockaway Beach section of Queens in New York on March 31st, 1939. Known as Irish Town, Rockaway Beach has been home to wayward mix for generations, with Irish immigrants pouring into the area since the mid-1800s. Much like the hurricane in 1893 that would totally obliterate Hog Island off the coast of Rockaway Beach, Joe Mad Dog Sullivan would too wreak havoc, and would go on to decimate the Irish organised crime families of New York and help make the Genovese crime family the most powerful of all. Joe was the oldest son of Gerard and Nora Sullivan and the second of six children. He grew up idolising his decorated New York City cop father, who was a first-grade detective at the Brooklyn 79th Precinct. Gerard Sullivan was a devoted father who loved spending weekends with his family at the beach. In 1946, when Joe was seven, the Sullivan family moved away from Rockaway Beach to Woodhaven, Queens. Being good Irish Catholics, Joe was an altar boy and his schooling was steeped in religion. Joe said his pre-teen years were happy ones. Then, at the age of 13, a plot point happened in Joe's life that would shatter his idyllic upbringing. While he was playing in the yard, his tactless Aunt Seal leaned out the back door and casually shouted, Joseph, come in the house. You have to get dressed. Your father just died. 
Joe, devastated, burst into tears and collapsed. Joe's father, Gerard, hadn't even been sick for very long. Stomach cancer had snuffed him out at the age of only 36. Joe would later say of this time, He was like Superman to me. He ain't supposed to die. I felt cheated. The fact Joe's pa died when he was just two years shy of receiving a pension certainly didn't help and it left his family destitute. His poor grieving mother, Nora, was left alone with six young mouths to feed. It was too much for the young widow to bear. She had a breakdown and turned to the bottle. The cupboards were soon empty of food. Little Joe tried to help his mother, but soon she was out of control and began to take out her frustrations on her children, especially Joe. Young Joey would often go to school with a black eye and other injuries from beatings he would endure from his alcoholic ma. Eventually, Joe was sent to live with his Uncle John and Aunt Seal. This did not help. His aunt, who had bluntly told him his father had carked it, was a man-hating religious nutbag. Joe called her the bitch. In the biography of Joe Sullivan's life, Tears and Tears, he talks about this time and how he was always required to be dressed right and be well-behaved. Joe hated not being able to play stickball with his mates after school and started to push back. But what really got Joe's goat was chapel time. Aunt Seal had converted a spare room upstairs into a prayer room, complete with statues of saints and religious artefacts. On one wall was a huge wooden cross, which Joe says was so big, I could have nailed a midget on it. From 6pm to 9pm every night, Joe and his two female cousins were made to kneel on the hard wooden floor, praying for forgiveness for all their real and imagined sins. After months of this, one night Aunt Seal saw Joe wasn't wincing in knee pain like his cousins. She demanded Joe drop trowel. As the pants came down, his aunt was shocked to see Joe had tied strips of bath towels around his bruised and swollen knees. You're cheating the Lord, Joseph. Without pain, you cannot feel the cleansing of your soul. Aunt Seal and her daughters chanted in chorus at Joe. Cheater! 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 This is bullshit, Joe thought. He was tired of their crap and began to walk out of the room. Where do you think you're going? Come back here this instant and kneel down! Fuck you, Aunt Seal! Fuck you! Joe screamed back. Come back here this instant and kneel down! Where was Uncle John? I hear you ask Tara. I was wondering that, but I certainly didn't say it. Well, he's at the pub where he was every night to escape the demented harpy that he married. When Uncle John eventually came home, Joe told him what had happened. I'm sorry, Joe. I think for everyone's sake, it will be best if you move back home with your mother, John told him. Back at home with his alcoholic mother, things did not improve for young Joe. His first night back, his ma Nora ordered Joe to go to the local Willow Bar and Grill to pick up a collection tin organised by friends of his father. Here's how Joe tells it. Just as I was getting to the container, somebody reached in and took a couple of quarters for the jukebox. He's my father's friend. Just to see somebody take money out of something that was supposed to go to his friend's children, it taught me real hatred and I could have killed him. Joe remembers this as the moment the shriveled up leftover scraps of his childhood completely turned to dust. The sweet little boy who loved to swim at the beach with his da was now dead. When Joe returned home from the bar with the collection tin, his mum slurred at him. Only $24? Did you take anything out of here? When Joe told her he didn't, Nora drunkenly lowered the bar on parenting even further by yelling at Joe, Tell him you didn't mean it! When Joe nervously asked her what she meant, Nora replied, You know he was sick before he went into the hospital. If you'd been a good son, he would have lived. You killed him with your selfishness, Joseph. Now pray and ask him for his forgiveness, you Bastard. Nora would then beat Joe to within an inch of his life. This was a scene that would be repeated night after night for months. The culmination of the loss of his father and all the pain, suffering and blame that had come his way afterwards had shattered Joe. If you want to know how to break a child and transform them into someone who could become a cold-blooded killer, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better blueprint. Joe would run away from home numerous times, but not without experiencing crushing guilt over leaving his siblings behind. 
It only took a couple of short years before Joe was known around the neighbourhood as a thug and a bully. At 14, he had his first stint in juvie jail. It would be the first of many. All the way through his teens, Joe would endure one reform school after another. He spent some quality time in New York State Training School for Boys in Warwick and later the New York State Vocational Institute in Cosaxi. Here, Joe was brutalised and humiliated by guards and other inmates. He told a friend the way he managed to cope, saying, All the time I was thinking, I'm going to kill them all one day. He also said years later in his biography, Tears and Tears, The Life and Times of Joseph Mad Dog Sullivan, that he prayed to his father. It was to him I whispered in the darkness of my cell where God does not live. His long-dead copper dar did not answer him, but Joe sure felt his presence. After nearly six years in teenager jail, 19-year-old Joe was finally set free. Back in Queens, he got hired and then fired from three crappy factory jobs in just eight days. Of those 1958 factory jobs, Joe said, Those bastards wanted my fucking soul for $50 a week. Joe struggled to adjust to life on the outside, and living back home with his family certainly didn't help. Three weeks later, he fled the boredom and poverty and began hitchhiking cross-country with a friend, but he and his mate were soon short on cash. They took to rolling drunks for their wallets, and when that got tired, the pair engaged in a spate of petty burglaries. One night, the genie came out of the bottle, and Joe's frustration went critical mass. He ended up beating a man to death with a hammer. This would be the first of Joe's many kills. When asked about it in a later interview, Joe said, It was about hate, anger. It was about my losses in life, and I felt everybody should pay for them. Onward, Joe and his friend went from California to Las Vegas to Wyoming, where they were apprehended by police. At this time, in Joe's bag were a 38, a knife and a hammer. Not wanting to go down for a gun charge in Wyoming, Joe pulled off his first escape from imprisonment by diving through a plate glass window at the police station. He woke up two hours later in hospital and was charged with carrying a concealed weapon. He was only sentenced to 22 days. Yeah, he said that uh, when he came out of the window, he thought he was running away, but he was just running in circles. In the snow, and then next thing, somebody tackled him, and then he woke up in hospital. Oh, wow. So it was the worst escape attempt of all time. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Yes. (laughs) On release, with seven cents in his pocket, Joe walked into an army recruitment station and joined up, mostly as a means to escape the cold. In the army, he went AWOL on several occasions and fled back to New York City, where he was captured and tossed in a military stockade on Governor's Island in New York Harbour. Joe Sullivan escaped by covering his body in two pounds of margarine and swimming all the way back to Brooklyn. (laughs) Problem was, it was December and the water was fucking freezing. (sighs) Good thing he trained his body for three weeks by taking ice-cold showers. Joe was eventually drummed out of the army on a BCD, a bad conduct discharge. That's how we're going to get drummed out of podcasting. It's the worst kind of discharge. Well, yeah, and most kinds of discharge aren't pleasant. No, they're not great, are no, they? No, no. And that's that's a very bad kind. Very bad. Yeah. An honourable discharge, that's probably the only good discharge. Yeah, well, I mean, it's kind of king of the discharges, really. <laughs> it was now 1959 and Joe was soon arrested for robbing a bar in New Jersey. He got seven years in Trenton State Prison, and despite his traumatic years in juvie, he wasn't nearly prepared for how brutal it would be. Here, Joe witnessed prison rapes and murders. At Trenton Prison, homosexuality was encouraged, because the guards believed it made men cause less trouble. On arrival, Joe was told by one of the guards, why don't you get yourself a kid and settle down? (laughs) Jesus. Being a young boy himself at only 19, Joe would sleep with cans on strings tied to his door so no one could sneak in and bugger him or shiv him. After a month at Trenton, Joe was moved to Rahway and immediately landed himself in a horrific prison riot supposedly organised by the great Reuben Hurricane Carter, the American-Canadian middleweight boxer from the Bob Dylan song. Oh, and the Denzel Washington movie. That's right. Hurricane Carter was wrongfully convicted of a murder and later released after spending almost 20 years in prison. During the riot, Joe saw Hurricane Carter kick the canteen door in and help himself to 20 cartons of cigarettes. After tearing the prison apart, the riot ended when an announcement came over the loudspeaker saying, All right, fellas, let's go back to the blocks now. 
You've had your fun. You've got your point across. There'll be no retaliation. Just go back to your cells and everything will be all right. Joe returned to his cell. The prisoners that didn't had the shit kicked out of them by the dozens of state police that had rolled into railway. After the riot, Joe was sent back to Trenton. In 1965, 26-year-old Joe was granted parole. He had no prospects and nowhere to go. He was suspicious of everyone. He was angry and full of spite. His answer to this was to get his drink on. But Joe didn't want to go back to prison, so to survive and stay on the outside, he pushed his hatred down. He buried it in a small box deep inside himself. Joe got himself a bullshit job in a bullshit artificial Christmas tree factory. After weeks of this robotic work, Joe cracked the shits, walked out one afternoon to the bar across the road and never went back. A few months later, he met 19-year-old Gail Weiner at his sister's house in Queens. Joe made quite an impression on Gail Weiner. She said he was a gentleman and he asked the right questions. He was very well behaved, very soft-spoken. I trusted Joe from the minute I laid eyes on him. Joe thought Gail was a bit of all right, but there was a catch. She was dating his younger brother. Great, now Joe had some more feelings to repress and squeeze into his little box. On December 19, 1965, after about eight hours of solid boozing, which was just a regular day for Joe, he went out and bought a gun. He ended up at the Willow Bar and Grill. Remember that bar, Barney? I do. Yeah, that's where the collection tin for his family was all those years ago. Mm, that's right. Being very drunk and in that bar again gave Joe the major feels. He said, all I could think about was my father. It all came out of me, the demons within, all those years of abuse. So I'm walking to this bar and I just got evil. I see a canister at the end of the bar, but it's for like polio victims. But in my mind, nothing has changed. That's for the Sullivan kids. I go to the small end of the bar and I'm sitting there and in my mind, I'm going to kill somebody and I feel it. A man at the bar recognised Joe as one of the Sullivan boys and said hello. Hello? Joe said his response was to say, you're one of them, my father's so-called friends. Joe pulled his gun out and shot him in the head. The man slumped down on his stool, blood pouring out of his new head orifice. The man Joe had killed was Billy Campbell, an old friend of his mother and father's. Joe had been to grade school with his son. Joe ran out of the bar and embarked on a two-month bender and crime spree across four states. He robbed banks and beat people senseless for their wallets before being arrested in Alabama. Joe was sent back to New York and tried and convicted of multiple charges, including manslaughter for shooting Billy Campbell in the Willow Bar and Grill. Joe would spend the next 30 years in one of America's toughest prisons, Attica. Or would he? As Joe entered the supposedly escape-proof Attica, he wanted to die. He just didn't think he could handle it. That was until he met renowned bank robber and escape artist Willie Sutton. Joe said, I never forget asking Willie, You've been here all these years. There isn't a way out? He said there's always a way out. It's just a matter of finding the peace in that puzzle. Joe thought about that piece in the puzzle for three long years and then he came up with a daring plan. He had studied and memorised the guards' routines, telling his cellmate, they're like goddamn robots. You could set your watch off according how many times they scratch their ass." His cellmate replied, yes, but suppose tomorrow their assholes aren't itchy and they don't need no scratching. Then my ass will get scratched, Joe said. Bloody Murder will be back with more of our special on contract killer Mad Dog Joe Sullivan after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yo, Barney Two Cakes, what's the time? It's True Crime Nerd Time! True Crime Nerd Time True Crime Nerd Time True Crime Nerd Time I love 
True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, graphic novel, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? Oi! You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have a True Crime Nerd Time here from Isabel Taylor. And she writes... I have a suggestion for True Crime Nerd Time. I found a wonderful podcast called Dr. Death. Unlike other doctors who are killers, Christopher Dunch, also known as Dr. Death. Christopher Dunch got his panties in a bunch. <laughs> he did. Was a surgeon who messed up his patients in a horrific way. The podcast goes into details about how a horrible surgeon managed to keep practicing in many different hospitals across Dallas, even after killing one person and paralyzing another. It's hosted by Laura Beale, who did an amazing job with the research. I, w- I listened to that whole series. It was, it was quite good. It's a wondery one. so the, the High production quality. High production quality, really in-depth research. Not too repetitive. I liked it. I Excellent. liked it a lot. Thank you, Isabel. Now, if you'd like to send in a true crime nerd time, go to our website, and there's instructions there on how to do that. Pretty much you just email it to us. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, but um, you know, yeah, it's but... more complicated than that. Oh yeah, you got to yeah. write in the email. I love Barney; he's so great. <laughs> well, it's all true, <laughs> especially the bit where it goes. <laughs> and now for more of Contract Killer, Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. Attica Maximum Security Prison in upstate New York was built in the early 1930s in an attempt to relieve overcrowding and prison riots that had been occurring all over the tri-state area. The gigantic fortress-like prison was seemingly escape-proof, with walls two feet thick and 30 feet tall, topped with more than a dozen guard towers. By the early 1970s, conditions for prisoners at Attica were harsh. The prisoners were angry and tensions ran high. Joe knew there was a black cloud hanging over Attica. He could sense something bad was about to go down and he didn't plan on being there when it happened. On Good Friday, April 9, 1971, Joe hid behind the coal pile near a guard tower under an elevated train track where coal was dumped. He put on a guard's uniform, which he'd stolen from the prison laundry, complete with handmade prison officer badges, lovingly created out of tin cans during prison crafternoon. <laughs> he had 32 pieces of threaded pipe taken from the metal shop, which he now assembled into a makeshift ladder. Hoisting the ladder, he quickly scaled the 30-foot wall. There, right under the guards' noses, Joe dropped the ladder on the other side and climbed down to freedom. He then dismantled the ladder and walked the perimeter past eight guard towers to the front parking lot where he hitched a ride to the nearest Greyhound bus station. And like that, (sighs) Mad Dog Joe Sullivan was in the wind. A massive manhunt was launched for Joe the only prisoner who ever escaped from Attica. Joe made his way to New York City, where he stupidly contacted his friends and relatives. Joe's freedom would last only five weeks. He was arrested with a sawn-off shotgun down his pants on May 18, 1971, at the corner of East 12th Street and University Place in Greenwich Village by New York State Parole Officers. They had staked out the office building where his crush Gail Weiner worked and pinched him when he tried to visit her. He was sent back to serve out the rest of his sentence plus 10 years, but luckily, Tara, not within the high walls of Attica. Joe's spidey senses were right about Attica. Something very bad did happen. On September 9, 1971, four months after Joe's escape, 1,281 of the prison's 2,200 inmates rioted and took control of the prison, taking 42 staff hostage. It was known as the Great Uprising. After four days, state police stormed the prison and took back control. When the smoke cleared, 43 people were dead, including 10 corrections officers and civilian employees and 33 inmates. This uprising and carnage would bring in sweeping changes to the American penal system. Four years later, in 1975, Joe got parole. Former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark was fascinated with the articulate and intelligent Joe Sullivan and considered him a great candidate for rehabilitation. Ramsey served as Joe's attorney before the parole board, and the sway he held gained Joe his freedom. Now 36 years old, Joe still carried a torch for a special lady friend he'd met many years ago. Is it me? No. Is it you? No. Joe still had the hots for Gail Weiner. Of course he did. Mm Mm-hmm. 
After dating Joe's little brother for a short time, Gail had married another man, but that didn't work out and she was now going through a divorce. Gail said, he wanted to meet up with me and I said fine and I went to meet him in the city. We started dating almost immediately. Meanwhile, Joe got himself a job doing dull as dog shit clerical work in a social services office. Joe hated the daily grind and figured there must be an easier way to make some money. In May 1976, Joe got in touch with an old prison buddy and maid man named John J.J. Sullivan, who despite having the same surname was actually no relation to Joe. John was the right-hand man for Genovese crime family kingpin Fat Tony Salerno, who ruled from a chair on an East Harlem pavement. Original gangster Anthony Fat Tony Salerno was born and raised in East Harlem, New York. He made his bones in gambling, numbers rackets, loan sharking and protection rackets for the Lucky Luciano family, which later became the Genovese family. Fat Tony quickly climbed the ranks by controlling a million dollar a year numbers racket and a major loan sharking operation. Sporting a snazzy fedora hat and chomping on a cigar, Fat Tony actually led a rather low-key and unpretentious life. He was known for sending out Christmas cards with a picture of himself in pyjamas on them. I really like that detail. It's good, isn't it? (laughs) I want one of those cards. By the early 1960s, Fat Tony controlled the largest numbers racket operation in the world, grossing more than $1 billion per year. Fat Tony would end up being convicted on RICO charges in 1986 and sentenced to a whopping 100 years. This will be followed by another 70 years for further charges in 1988. Joe's connection to Fat Tony was John Sullivan. As well as being Fat Tony's underboss and running key mob rackets at the New York Coliseum Convention Centre, John also worked as a labour union leader. Joe Sullivan met John at a restaurant near the convention centre and Joe hit John up for a job. Being a seasoned gangster, John put a question to Joe. He pointed to a man and said, You see that guy over there? On your way out, blow his brains out. You got a problem with that? Joe shook his head and said no. That was the answer John was looking for. The man they were eyeballing was Tommy Devaney, a goon of Irish mobster Mickey Spillane, and he would get got soon enough. This was the beginning of a long-term partnership between Joe Mad Dog Sullivan and the Genovese crime family. It was around this time that according to a 1989 Playboy article, Joe helped the Genovese family with their Jimmy Hoffa problem. Hoffa had to get got because he threatened to expose the connection between the Teamsters and organised crime. On July 30, 1975, John Sullivan and associate Jimmy Coonan shot Hoffa with 22s fitted with silencers. The guns were loaded with dum-dum bullets, which are the kind that expand on impact. They then dismembered Hoffa's body. A few days later, Joe Mad Dog Sullivan disposed of the body under concrete. He entombed it under the newly constructed Giants New Jersey Sports Stadium all at the direction of Anthony Fat Tony Salerno. But the Genovese family had another problem. They were waging war with Irish mobsters for control of the lucrative construction markets, and the crowning turd in this sleazy, crime-riddled water pipe was the $486 million Jacob Javits Centre. This new convention centre would replace the ageing Coliseum. It was to be built right smack-bang in the middle of the Irish-controlled neighbourhood called Hell's Kitchen. Mob handler John Sullivan saw Joe as naive, someone he could control, someone who could do some of the wet work required by the mob, but be far enough removed from the family that they would not get blowback. John thought Joe would be perfect for the Irish problem. Now, if cigar chomping fat Tony Salerno wanted to rule Hell's Kitchen, he needed to get rid of the West Side Irish mob boss Mickey Spillane, who refused to let the Italian mobsters participate in the rackets there. Now, not to be confused with the hard-boiled writer Mickey Spillane, this Michael J. Spillane started his criminal career with an entry-level position as a numbers runner for several organised crime figures in Hell's Kitchen. In 1960, he took control of the rackets left to him by his predecessor, Huey Mulligan. To raise money for his own endeavours, Mickey would kidnap members of the Italian Mafia and hold them for ransom. Suffice to say, the Italian Mafia were not happy with this fundraising technique. Has he never heard of raffling off a meat tray or something instead? I guess it's his version. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, the Tupperware just wasn't cutting it, was it? No, I guess not. Bumping off Mickey's Spillane wouldn't be easy. Before doing so, Joe would need to eliminate Mickey's top three enforcers. 
First on this kill list was Spillane's top gunman, Tommy Devaney. The demise of Devaney was to go down in a bar on a hot summer morning on July 20th, 1976, two months after Joe had started stalking him. On this morning, Dominic's Bar and Grill in Manhattan was almost empty, except for a couple of barflies having their brekkie beers, whilst a bored bartender polished glasses and pretended to listen to a regular griping at the bar. A Hispanic-looking man sat alone in a dark corner staring at a pint. In strolled Irish mobster Tom Devaney and two of his goons. The Hispanic-looking man eyeballed Tommy and then carefully wiped his fingerprints off the glass before slowly walking toward him. The man pulled out a thirty-eight, put it to the back of Tommy Devaney's head and fired, spraying blood and brains all over the bar. The Hispanic-looking man then calmly walked out into the sunlight and got into a waiting car. He nodded for the driver to go, took off his afro wig and started wiping the brown makeup off his face. Joe's disguise idea was compliments of the prison drama classes he attended. Ah, see, you can, you, you can learn new tricks on the inside. You can. This was Joe Sullivan's first hit for the Genovese family. The driver of the car was old-school mafia hitman and Joe's murder mentor, George Barone. Years later, Barone would turn rat. In 2001, when he was questioned by the FBI, Barone told them, I got a track record of being in a lousy, dirty, rotten environment where killing was just part of staying alive. As in dog eat dog, the FBI asked him. As in dog kill dog, Barone replied. Barone the Squealer was a favourite of the big boss man himself, Vito Genovese. A 1957 story in the New York Times described Barone as a rising star in the International Longshoremen's Association. In other words, dodgy dock rackets. The article called Barone handsome, articulate and ambitious. I'm sure an envelope stuffed with cash went to the editor for that one. What the story didn't happen to mention was that Barone was the go-to murder guy for the Genovese's in those days. Ah, the 50s. They weren't all happy days, were they, Tara? Oh, sit on it, Potsy. Barone told the FBI he'd lost count of the people he'd whacked. Somewhere between 12 and 20 was the best he could figure because he said, I didn't keep a murder scorecard. When pressed about who else was involved, he said, Ah, we all had nicknames except me. There was Meatball, Snot Nose, Big Feet, Little Feet, Fish, Sardines and so on. I never knew what a guy's last name was. Barone was one of 22 key waterfront figures who were charged with racketeering and extortion a year later. Barone was convicted on 18 counts, including shaking down businesses and taking kickbacks. He was sentenced to 15 years and fined $10,000. Through appeals, he got the term knocked down to 12 and a half years. With good behaviour, he was out in seven. And having coffee! <laughs> well, look at that, I squealed him out in seven! <laughs> anyway, back to Joe. A week after the Tommy Devaney hit, Joe was lying on the beach in the Bahamas with his sausage-named girlfriend, Gail Weiner. 30-year-old Gail had no clue what Joe was up to. She believed him when he told her he'd gone straight and worked in construction. It didn't even fully sink in when Joe came home with blood on his suit after the Devaney hit. I really didn't get the drift of what he was doing, but once a suit had to get thrown away, it was kind of like, okay, something really bad's happening here. Though her instincts knew something was up, Gail didn't bother to ask. She preferred to focus on the positives about Joe, saying, I liked his intelligence, he was hungry for the world, which made it interesting for me because I really wanted to see the world. And he wanted to eat it. And he wanted to he wanted to watch it burn. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. After a few weeks of drinking pina coladas in the sun, Joe was ready to get back to work. Oh, did he like pina coladas? And getting caught in the rain. Was he not into yoga? No. No, he liked to shoot people in the brain. Did he like <laughs> did he like making love at midnight? John Sullivan was very pleased with the way Joe had handled himself and gave him four more hits to carry out for the Genovese family. Bam, 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 and they were done. Then John called on Joe to take out another key target, a brutal Spillane enforcer named Edward Eddie the Butcher Kaminsky. Eddie was mentor to Jimmy Coonan, who would later become the leader of the Westies and who was the guy who allegedly helped take care of Jimmy Hoffa. While serving time in Attica, Eddie had learnt the trade of butchery, hence the nickname, and him being adept at his two favourite things, making homemade sausages and dismembering wise guys. 
His Tinder profile writes itself. It really does. One of the butcher's many murders was a fellow gang member, Paddy Duggan. After shooting Duggan, Eddie and his protege, Jimmy Coonan, sliced his body up into convenient disposable pieces. The next day, thirsty from their hard work, they went out for a drink at the Sunbright Bar. According to legend, they bought the head of Duggan with them and set it down on a bar stool. They ordered his favourite drink, whiskey, lit one of his cigarettes and put it in his mouth. It was also rumoured that they kept Paddy Duggan's penis in a pickle jar in a refrigerator at the bar. Now that could become problematic if you were drunk and hungry, couldn't it, Barney? Oh, I feel like something to eat. Well, what's this then? Oh, pickles. Yum. Yum. No, Barney. No, I'd encourage you to eat the penis pickle, Barney. <laughs> you know I wouldn't stop you from doing yum, that. Yum, 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 oh, yum. It's chewy. Oh, it's chewy and penisy. On August 20th, 1976, Joe Sullivan grabbed his Afro wig, sunglasses and Hispanic makeup and headed to Hell's Kitchen, dressed like an extra from Welcome Back Cotter. It was early that afternoon and Joe knew that Eddie the Butcher Kaminsky liked to hang out at the Sunbright Saloon. And sure enough, there he was at the bar drinking with his gangster buddies. Joe strolled in and waited for the right time. Kamiski was laughing with his friends and talking about a good time they'd had recently, saying, I don't know if we'll get a chance to do that again, because any day somebody may walk in and blow my brains out. That was when Joe Sullivan shot him in the head. Joe reported back to his mob handler, John Sullivan, who passed him an envelope with less cash than you'd imagine in it. Joe said, I get like $300 or $400 a month. Meanwhile, I'm killing people almost every month. I expect to get paid better, and it was always, don't worry, the big money is coming soon. I could never ask. I showed my loyalty. But Joe wasn't just doing it for the money. I'd be lying if I said I didn't like the action. There was always the chase, the hunt, the excitement, but never the actual killing, he said. Joe's girlfriend, Gail Weiner, knew something was off about Joe, but she had it bad for him anyway, explaining, Joe always kept everything separate. He kept that life as separate as he could. I never knew about the murders. I never knew what happened. In early 1977, Gail found out she was pregnant. With her divorce now finalised, on March 19th, she and Joe got married. There was plenty of music and food for the 250-plus guests at the reception. As Joe danced with his new mother-in-law, she asked if Joe was happy with her daughter. Joe replied, Joe replied, how could I not be when she's so much like her mother? Oh, he's a charmer. He's kissed the Blarney Stone, that one. Yeah, what a suck-ass. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something you'd say. Six months later, Joe and Gail welcomed a baby boy into their lives, Ramsey Kenneth Sullivan, named after Joe's old lawyer, former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark. After becoming a husband and father, 38-year-old Joe Dad Dog Sullivan carried out over a dozen more hits. To hear all about that and Joe's sensational downfall, make sure you listen to our next episode, which will be part two of our special on contract killer Mad Dog Joe Sullivan. I'm really looking forward to that. It's oh, going to be so much fun. I know. I'm just. I'm really looking forward to the nicknames they're going to have. There's more nicknames. Oh, there's a lot more nicknames. We've got Johnny Flowers coming up. Oh, yeah, and Tony Bananas. Hey, Tara, I have a question for you. Yes, Barney? What is Aussie as? Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. I got a long one today. You want to hear it? Yeah, get it out. It's juicy. Gangland identity Roberta Williams is back in the news. Roberta is under investigation over an extortion and kidnap plot due to allegations made by the producer of her proposed reality TV show, Ooh-wee. There's a lot to unpack here, Barney. This sounds awesome. (laughs) Tell me more. Roberta Williams came to notoriety as the wife of drug boss and convicted murderer Carl Williams, who we did a special on in episode 53. Carl Williams was a crime boss, serial killer, drug dealer and prison snitch. In an ironic twist of fate, Carl Fatboy Williams was beaten to death inside Barwon Prison in 2010 with part of an exercise bike. This was after he turned dog and implicated former policeman Paul Dale in the 2004 murder of informer Terry Hodson. Since then, his wife Roberta and their 19-year-old daughter Dakota have not exactly shied away from the spotlight. Oh, they're definite fame whores, aren't Mm -hmm. they? In fact, a couple of years back, Dakota was giving interviews about her late father in the hope that it would somehow get her a modelling career. But it didn't. 
And this left her to post sultry pictures of herself in Kardashian-like drag on her Instagram. You know she has 32,000 followers, so she's a damn sight more popular than we are. (laughs) Yes, she is. She really is. But Roberta and Dakota were trying to make another grab for fame by making a reality TV show. And despite the fact that I would watch the shit out of that, they couldn't get it funded. No. Being an attention-hungry go-getter, Roberta started a GoFundMe to raise the $50,000 she needed to make the reality series. Her GoFundMe page says, The aim of this television series is to show the country what it's like to be Roberta Williams. This television series will give the public a glimpse inside the life of a family who live in the shadow of their fallen husband and father. We envision the series to be a mixture of mob wives meets keeping up with the Kardashians. The show promises to be glamorous, controversial and entertaining. What more could you want for your weeknight viewing pleasure? The GoFundMe asked. In a promotional video on the GoFundMe site, which I was so gutted to learn has been removed, Roberta says, Wait to see the real me. Get to know me before you judge me. See the person I am and then judge me. Then I will take your comments and criticism and I won't even complain. Oh, Roberta, shut up and take my money. 38-year-old producer Ryan Nemenko told The Age newspaper that Roberta slipped into his Instagram DMs three months ago to enlist his help for the show as a producer. Ryan said that about five weeks ago, he agreed to be the producer and had even booked studios in an apartment for filming. Ryan said everything was going smoothly. I was told to go to a celebration at Collingwood to announce the great news. There were six people there, including Roberta. They slapped me in the mouth, stomach, chest. She slapped me and choked me. They put electric flex around my neck. One guy pulled a pistol from his pants and put it to my head. He hit me on the thigh to make me sit down and then tied me up. They were telling me, talk and we will kill you, your mother and your kids. They told me that I owed them 20 grand. They said I'd got them the foot in the door and they didn't need me anymore. They said they had no use for me and I had to sign over my rights. So what they did is they they put his phone on speaker and they called his mother and his father and his sister and got him to ask them for money. This has really taken a turn, hasn't it? It's actually it's, quite dark. This is um, horrifying for yeah. this guy. Yeah, so they've got him like tied to a chair. They're saying, say anything wrong and we'll put one in you. And Roberta kept screaming that they were going to kill him and the kids. Uh, he said it was horrific and he thought he was going to die. So they were trying to get him to get money from his family so that he would give the money to them which is not a great way to fundraise. Um, Ryan's mother said that she got a text from him that night saying, call the police ASAP. But Roberta must have found out about that because a couple of hours later, Ryan's mum got another text that read, I fucked up and ripped people off. I'm fine and coming home. Now his mother said, I knew Ryan had not sent it as he never swears in a message to me. Now my mum would know that I hadn't sent it if I didn't swear in a message to her. Ryan's sister and father transferred about three grand that night, but the demands for money persisted. Ryan said that he suffered a suspected fractured jaw and cheekbone, as well as bruising on his neck and a leg injury. Detectives are said to have recovered a bunch of texts to Ryan that include demands for money. The head of the fraud and extortion squad, Detective Inspector Greg Bowd, commented on the investigation, saying, One man has been charged and inquiries are ongoing. The GoFundMe page Roberta set up to raise 50 grand for her glamorous Kardashian-like reality television project has at this point only raised $865. Although Roberta told Ryan that $10,000 in seeding money had already been acquired from an outlaw bikey from Sydney. Now, I wonder if the outlaw bikey invested in the show so he could be on it too. That would have been awesome. It's getting better and better, isn't it? Yeah, but seriously, what the fuck? You could not make this shit up. So poor Ryan has actually skipped town and is hiding out in the country somewhere. He's terrified for his life and for his family's life, poor guy. All he wanted to do was help make the awesome and glamorous Roberta show happen and now it's probably never going to happen and Ryan's been scarred for life. She's probably going to go to jail for this. Oh, she's a slippery fucker. But the thing is, I mean, nobody wins. She's probably not going to get the show made. Ryan's scarred for life. We won't get to watch the awesome and glamorous Roberta show. Uh, yeah. That's just incredibly disappointing all around. I'm, and, very, I'm uh, very sad. 
Yeah, there is one thing I'm sure of, though. I bet we haven't heard the last of Roberta Williams. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was a corker. I just found it quite unbelievable when I was researching that. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow our Facebook page or join our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And on Instagram, we're at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. I just added some magnets there. Bloody Murder fridge magnets. How do they work? <laughs> I don't know. It's like magic. Nobody knows. (laughs) Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Magnets, how do they work? They're magic. I don't know. I'm not going to squeal on how the magnets work. I don't know nothing about magnets. My Transformers magnet doesn't work. No. I didn't stick enough magnets on it. Yeah, isn't it too heavy? Because It's of- too heavy. And I glued all those magnets on it and it's still too heavy and it just slides down my fridge. Like uh. a sad, sad fucking life I had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Poor Barney. His magnet doesn't work. Yeah. Wham, wham, wham. I've only got two cakes. I want three. Oh, my God. So you can have your cake and you can eat it too and you still want another cake. For what? For Great. throwing at people? Great. Yes. Oh, well, aren't you fancy? I am a great greedy guts. I want three cakes. Barney, three cakes? <laughs> yeah, Barney, three cakes. He was down there. He wasn't doing nothing. So, Barney, Joe's Aunt Seal reminds me of Carrie's mother in the movie Carrie. Yeah. yeah very much so. So, um, because of this, I actually printed out some quotes from the movie Carrie because uh, I thought we could have fun with that. Now, obviously, you'll be playing Carrie. Is that okay? Well, it's a role I was born to play. Well, the resemblance is indeed striking between you and Sissy Spacek. Well, I do have a, a freckled, red-headed little girl deep inside me. Oh, dude, you should probably let her out. I can't <laughs> imagine she's having any fun in there at all. <laughs> all right. Carrie. You haven't touched your apple cake. It gives me pimples, Mama. Pimples are the Lord's way of chastising you. I might have known it would be red. It's pink, Mama. Look what Tommy gave me, Mama. Aren't they beautiful? I can see your dirty pillows. Everyone will. Breasts, Mama. They're called breasts and every woman has them. Nearly even more. Breasts, Mama. They're called breasts. Breasts, Mama. Breasts. And every woman has them. (laughs) <laughs> you got to get the words exactly there. Breasts! <laughs> Breasts, Mama! Breasts, Mama! Breasts, Mama! And every woman has them. Breasts, Mama! They're called breasts! Breasts, every Mama! Every woman has them. Breasts, Mama! And every woman has them. Give me your sweatshirt. Give me your sweatshirt! No, Mama! No, Mama! We'll burn it together and pray for forgiveness. <laughs> Which got Satan's power? It's got nothing, Satan, Mama. It's me, me. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. He entered your father and carried him off. He ran away with a woman, Mama. Everyone knows that. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's some dark shit, isn't it? It's so fucking dark. I have to to hold murder bear so that I don't... um, I don't like bang shit <laughs> and disrupt the microphones and things because I'm very passionate when I speak. <laughs> I'm very passionate when I speak. Oh, I'm very passionate when I speak. Oh, I'm just really passionate I when fe- I speak, I, eh? I really feel things. I feel them quite strongly. <laughs> and when I talk, it comes out in the way I talk. Oh, it comes out my whole body, eh? Oh, it comes out. I can wave my <laughs> arms around. I'm, I'm, I bang shit. I'm quite emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very emotional person who uh, often speaks in ways that have a flourish to them. Don't you think, Barney? Oh, really? Yeah, I can see it coming in your voice now. I can see it coming in your hair tonight. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) I love that drum fill about to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's not a drum.
All oh, right, it's your ass. Oh, Lord. When pressed about who else was involved, he said, Ah, we all had nicknames except me. There was Meatball, Snot Nose, Big Feet, Little Feet, Fish, Sardines, and so on. I never knew what a guy's last name was. Sometimes Lex Cazado and I would go down the East River. Backshanks and Terry TikTok would be there too. We'd run rackets down there, you know, illegal gaming and stuff. Horseface Harry would be there. Ice Pick Willie, Tommy Butterfingers, Sammy Cheese Whiz. You know, Cat, Catface Murphy was down there too a lot. She was one nutty broad. She ended up wearing cement shoes in the East River. Barney Two Cakes was there with Bloodbags Boy. They were down by one PP. I think they were squealing. They turned rat. I ain't say nothing. I ain't talking. I ain't a squealer. Lucky Caterpillar Hat. He was going to plant a bomb in Brooklyn near Midtown. Dimebag McGee was in the Hamptons when Johnny Potato blew up the Met Stadium. <laughs> Have you got enough of it? That's great. <laughs> okay, good. After a few... <clears throat> I've got a sneeze happening. After maybe... a few weeks of drinking my... <laughs> Sorry. Maybe it was... <laughs> my, my snot is coming. <laughs> the first snot of spring. It's too soon. It's... It could be the last snot of winter. Uh, is, is there <laughs> such a thing as the last snot of winter? Well, it depends how often you do them, Barney. I can't... I don't know your life. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> well, I mean, kind well, of. Well, actually, the last time I snarted was the start of spring last year. <laughs> you know what you are? You're like um, Puxatawney Phil, the um, the groundhog. Uh, like if Barney does a certain snart, it means that there's like winter will end early. Really? Yeah, and spring will come. I'm a groundhog. Yeah. <laughs> Puxatawney Barney with the first snart of spring. <laughs> Puxatawney Barney was there. <laughs> They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.